What's your least favorite task at Christmas time? Think about it. I know there's a lot of things you love to do, but then there's some things that are hard to do. What's your least favorite task at Christmas time? Maybe it's hauling the decorations down from the attic, finding the perfect gift for people you hardly know or think about throughout the year. Maybe rushing out to get a gift for the person that, surprise, got you a gift too. What's your least favorite task at Christmas time? Finding that bulb that went out and that string of lights, which is how I spent part of my day yesterday, looking and finding that. Maybe it's addressing Christmas cards. How about that? I'm not sure about you. But when it comes to addressing Christmas cards, Wendy and I consider Excel and mail merge a godsend and a gift from God. Truth be told, actually, I don't even know how to work Excel, so I'm not much help in this area. So I just can mostly just put stamps on envelopes, and now you don't even have to lick them, so that's not even much help anymore. Um, so really, I just cheerlead Wendy on as she does this for us. But Christmas cards, Christmas cards can be a difficult task, but then they could be also something more than that. I guess most of us don't think much about addressing envelopes, except for the fact that it needs to get done. However, last year, I received this envelope that's pictured on the screen. That's no longer my address, so please don't send cards there anymore, (laughs) if that's what you're thinking. But last year, I received this envelope that's on the screen, and without even opening the card, a message was communicated. It was a message of care and patience and thoughtfulness. It was a message that said, even in the midst of our busy world and this even busier time of year, I slowed down enough to give you a gift, a gift of time a gift of beauty, a gift of thinking about you, a gift of naming. I mean, think about the amount of time it must have taken to, it's not printed, that's not printed by a computer, to handwrite each and every one of those letters thoughtfully and, and, and just uh, thinking about it. You have to think about the person. And maybe you don't have the gift of calligraphy and stenography that this person does, but we write people's names, and if we don't write people's names, we type people's names, we think about people. And this act of giving and receiving of Christmas cards, which may seem like a tradition or may seem like a ritual, but there is an aspect to it where you at least think about the people for a moment that the cards are going to and that the cards are coming from, you think about people. And when you think about someone, at least in that moment, You're caring for someone. So here's what I want you to do. If you've got a pen in hand or a pen nearby, maybe you don't, and if you don't, that's okay. But if you do have a pen in hand or a pen nearby, I want you to take that connection card that you were given when you came in, turn it over to the blank spot on the back, and I want you to take 30 seconds and write down as many names as possible of people that you care about. If you don't have a pen, just try and think through them in your mind. Write down as many names as possible as people you care about. Just quickly, write them down. People you care about in your life. At the end of his letter to the church in Rome, 
that we've been walking through as a church, the book we know in the Bible as Romans. As we come to the end of this letter today, to the final chapter, here's what Paul does. He does the same thing that you and I might do as we come to the end of a letter. He compiles a list of people whom he cares about. These are the names that are important to him and people for whom Paul is thankful. It's like when you come to the end of a phone call and you say, oh, say hi to Joe. Say hello to Joanne. You think about people that you care about. And so Paul, as he comes to the end of his letter to the Christians at the church in Rome, he takes a moment to do the same thing. Let's listen to the names that Paul names in this list in Romans chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cesarea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junior, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and her sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now look at the list of names that you've written down. And I have a question for you. What if you had a sense that one of these people was about to experience a hardship or a difficulty? What if you had a sense that one of them might have danger coming down the road, or many of them might? Certainly, you'd want to do all you could to warn them to the things that might affect them, help them to avoid something that could cause them to get off track in life. In fact, if something was coming down the road that you knew about, these are the people you'd probably call first. This is exactly how many parents, teachers, and mentors feel towards children who are ready to move on to a new stage in life, right? Children that are ready to move on. We, we say things to them to warn them about what might be coming down the road. Enjoy your new school, you might say to a student, but watch out for people who are bullies. You know, don't let them get to you. 
We might say, I hope you are wildly successful as you graduate college. But don't ever let your work take precedence over those things that are most important in life. You might say, enjoy driving. A parent might say to their newly licensed teenager, but be careful. Don't text and drive. All those other warnings that we might give. The couple that's been married for many years, looking at the newlywed couple that just said their wedding vows, might say, be careful because there are things that may come between you if you're not careful. There are people who may come and try and put obstacles in your way. When we care about people and we know there are things coming down the road that might be potential obstacles or stumbling blocks, we do what we can to warn them. Likewise, if we're facing an unexpected danger, we would expect people to warn us as well. After writing all these names that Paul writes or actually speaks because he has someone else writing for him, after saying all these names, the people that Paul cares about, he ends his letter to the Christians at Rome and he gives them a warning. He gives them a warning. It's like the parent who sees the teenager, newly licensed, that's about to walk out the door with the keys for the first time, and they say, be careful. And Paul, after saying all these names and thinking about what might come down the road, he in a sense says, be careful. When I was younger, I used to kind of think it was a little bit funny when my parents would say those words to me. And sometimes I would compose a response in my head that thankfully stayed in my head most of the time. Because in my head, the response went, oh, good, be careful. Good thing you said that. Before you said that, I was about to hurl myself off a cliff. But since you said be careful, you know, disaster averted. But now that I'm responsible for people, I find myself, my son walks out the door, be careful. Or my daughter is going off to school. Hey, be careful. Because when we care about people, we care about what might happen to them. And Paul does the same thing. See, he cares about these people that he just named. And they may seem like strange names to you. And it may feel like just reading through a first century phone book for you. And you don't know who they are. But you know what it's like to know the names of people you care about. And if you saw something coming down the road, you'd warn them. And you'd say, be careful. Here's what Paul's warning sounded like. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You be... For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul is saying, be careful. He uses different words. He says, watch out. But what Paul is concerned with is that we, people that he cares about, watch out. What what to watch out for, though? Specifically, he says, watch out for people who will try and lead you astray from the truth that was just laid out. 
Paul has just taken a great amount of time in what we have as 16 chapters to lay out the truth of God and the truth of the gospel. And now, just before he leaves, just before he signs off, he says, be careful because people will come who have different motivations, people who have their own motivations. Their motivations are not to glorify God and help you. Their motivations are to serve themselves and their own self-interest, to please their own appetites. So Paul says, even though I've laid out all this truth, even though you've heard it, watch out because people will come with smooth talk and flattery who will try and convince you of something different. And he says the way they'll do this is by teaching contrary to the way that you have been taught. If you put up those verses, you can see what Paul says. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who will cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So Paul says, be careful, watch out. I've taught you all these things, but if you're not careful, someone will come along and try and teach you something else. See, Paul was no fool. He understood he was not the only voice that people were listening to. He understood that there were many other voices in their ears and in their culture that they would hear. So he says, be careful, watch out. And there's people that you care about. How can you protect people that you care about? How can you recognize someone of self-interest maybe in your life or in the life of someone you care about? How can we protect the people we care about from being taken away by smooth talk and flattery or pleasant-sounding arguments? I think the way and the one piece of advice that I give you and I think what Paul is saying when he talks about contrary doctrines is this, watch out for imitations. Watch out for imitations because they're out there. Keep your eyes out for those things that would look like truth but are not. Watch out for imitations. They're out there. Everyone's always trying to sell you an imitation. Guys, maybe you this year are thinking about buying a a nice gift for your wife or your girlfriend and you think, well, I'm going to get her a really nice purse and you're thinking, I'm going to get her a nice coach or or a Louis Vuitton or a Burberry purse And then you go and you see how much those cost. And you say, there's got to be a different way. And lucky for you, you're walking through the streets of Boston. And there happens to be this guy who's just trying to get rid of a Burberry purse. He only has one. He doesn't need it anymore. And you can have it for $25. And it is your day. This is great. I would just say, watch out for imitations. Because you and I may look at that and say, looks good to me. But I promise you, whoever you're giving it to knows how to spot an imitation. Watch out for imitations. People are trying to sell you imitations. You know how you recognize an imitation? I'm sure you've heard this before. You know how to recognize an imitation? You study the original. You study the original. And it is the way many of you have heard this, and I've heard it many times, so I had to look into it to see if it's true, and it is true. The way they train federal agents to spot counterfeit bills is by making them study the original bill. Because when you study the original, you're able to spot something that doesn't line up. You study the texture of the cotton paper. How does it feel? You tilt the bill, and you look at all the different... uh, 
color changes things that they put in the paper and you see if they're present. You look through the bill so that you can see the watermarks that are present or should be present in there. And then finally, you look at the bill and you look for the intricacy of the lines, the cut of the paper, the bleed of the ink to make sure that it is what it should be. And if you study the original enough, it doesn't take much for you to feel a paper and say, nope, that's not it. See, you can recognize an imitation by understanding and knowing the original. And Paul is saying a similar thing too. He's saying, watch out for imitations. Be careful. Someone's going to come along with smooth talk and flattery, meaning it's going to sound good to you, but they're going to be trying to sell you an imitation. So be careful. So I thought what we'd do in our few minutes together today is just take a moment to look at some of those originals, some of those truths that we've learned as we've walked through the book of Romans for the last nine months together. Just quickly, I want to look at five truths, and I'm going to go through them very quickly for you. So if you're writing, write fast. I'm not going to keep them up here very long. Five things that are originals, they're truths, they're doctrines, and then what's a contrary that is sometimes tried to being sold to us. Now, if you're with us today and you're a guest and it's your first time here and you came to see the cute kids singing on stage, then you came on the right Sunday because I'm about to give you in nine minutes what everyone else got in nine months of sermons through Romans. We've been going through Romans through since April, and I'm going to take nine months of teaching and put it down to nine minutes and five quick truths. Look at the originals so you can know the imitation. So here we go. Five truths that are in the book of Romans that are the originals that you and I need to be aware of, and the first one is this. So contrary to doctrine, the doctrine is this. Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the truth. What Paul says, the first thing he says in the letter is, look, this is what you need to understand. What you need to understand is that nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. That everybody falls short on some point. That everybody is a sinner. That nobody is perfect and everybody sins and has sinned. But there's a contrary doctrine that our world will try and sell you. People will come along and try and give you, and it sounds good, and they'll use smooth talk and flattery, and it's this. People are generally good. Badness is a result of nurture, not nature, and there's no definitive good or bad for everyone. People will try and tell you that. Someone will come along with smooth talk, with flattery, and you'll start saying, you know what, maybe that's true. Maybe people are just generally good, and it's just nurture, not nature. It's just a part of the environment they grew up in. And if we could get the environment right, then it could all be solved. Many people today will believe if you get enough smart people in a room, and if you give them enough resources, that the problems of the world could be solved. That there could be peace on earth, that there would be no hunger, there would be no sickness. You get enough smart people, you get enough money together, and everything will be solved. And the earth and the world is constantly moving in a direction towards goodness and rightness and progressing towards something that's peace. And we just need to give it enough time and we'll get there. And tell that to the people who have had to flee Syria. Tell that to the people who are in civil wars in Nigeria. Tell that to the people who are fighting in Liberia, other countries around the world. 
And they would say, it doesn't seem like there's enough money, enough people. It doesn't seem like this is solving the problem. And the truth is, what Paul said, what God would say, is that there's something wrong internally with us. And no matter how many things you fix externally, you're always going to have a world full of sinful people and that even the best of us is a sinner. And you can look and you can know that truth because you can look at all the people in your world and you can say they seem like good people, but even then, there's something, and you know yourself, that even in your best of moments, there's something within you that isn't completely pure and completely right because we're all sinners. And so the truth is, we're sinners, but people will come along and try and sell you something very different than that. And so Paul says, don't be, con- don't be swayed by something that's contrary to the doctrine. Second one is this. Second one, we learned in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love for us. Contrary doctrine, sometimes taught within even churches, would say, Christ came for good, nice Christian people, but not for you or not for them, whoever them might be in your mind and heart. You need to clean yourself up and be better before God will love you. There'll be people coming along with smooth talk and flattery who might try and convince you or you're trying convinced in your own mind that God came for certain nice people. But this scripture says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other parts of Romans, it says he died for the ungodly, the ungodly, the sinners, that God loved you in the midst of your sin, that God loved you while a sinner, that you didn't have to clean yourself up for God to love you. It says, for God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a subtle one, but it's one that definitely happens that people will come along and say, you know what? They'll sit in church and they'll say, it wasn't for me. I see those nice Christian people that sit beside me and I, you know, I know God loves them, but he can't love me because I know myself too well. And if you think, think that, we're denying the scriptures. We're denying the truth. We're denying what's contrary because it says, while you were still a sinner, you didn't clean yourself up. You didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. And yet God loves you. Don't miss that truth. Don't let someone convince you otherwise. Third one. Third one is this, the doctrine is Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Say this word with me, gift. Say it again, gift. 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 This is something that is not earned, something that is not owed, something that is not deserved. It's a gift. See, what's owed is wages, we see it at this time of year, right? I mean, you're going to, if you work and you're working this, this time of year, at the end of the week or at the end of the two weeks, you get a paycheck and you're owed that. You deserve that. Those are your wages. But a gift, 
When somebody on December 25th hands you a gift, it's not because they owe it to you. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because they have to do it. It's a gift. It's a gift given to you, and you receive it as a gift, not owed, not earned, not deserved. So the contrary doctrine to this is this. As long as you do more good than bad, you should be all set. You can work your way to earn God's favor. And this is one that seeps in and that many people in our world will grab onto. You think you're going to heaven? Yeah, I think so. Well, why? Eh, I'm a pretty good person. I've done some good things. I think I've done more good than bad. I would guess that most of the people that you know that maybe aren't, you know, convinced of the gospel, maybe aren't churchgoers, that if they would say, yeah, there's probably something after this thing, and if there is something after this thing, then I've probably done more good than bad, so I'll probably end up in heaven and not hell, and and I think I'm going to be okay. Because the contrary truth is, as long as you've done more good than bad, you should be all set. You've earned it. It's owed to you. You deserve it because of the life you've lived. You look around and you say, gosh, there's a lot more people that are a lot worse than me, so I'm sure I'll be okay. But this scripture and the truths that Paul puts out there, and he says, don't miss this one. He says, the wages, what's owed to you, what you deserve as a sinner, what I deserve as a sinner, what's owed to me, the only thing I deserve, the only thing owed to me is death. And that's a pretty sad ending, if that was the end of the sentence. But it's not, because the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Not through your actions, not through you earning it, not through you deserving it, not through you being owed it, but because it's a gift from God. So don't lose the truth. Don't be convinced of this because this is one that definitely seeps in and that we can look at people and say, you know what, they're a pretty good person. They're probably all right. I don't need to tell them about Jesus. The wages of sin, and we're all sinners, is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So don't miss that truth. Watch out for imitations. The next one, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here's the truth. Paul says, look, you're a sinner. God loved you and came for you while you were a sinner. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And all you need to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Contrary truth that some people may believe is if you really want to be saved by God, there's a difficult process and a lot of rules that you need to follow to be saved. 
There are some people that would have you believe that you've got to follow all kinds of rules and you've got to follow a whole set of rules and the way you will be saved is by following the rules and by keeping the rules and by making sure you keep these rules and, and don't break these rules. And if you do that, then God has to save you. God has to save you. But what Paul says, the truth is, he's been telling these people and don't miss it and don't fall for imitations and don't fall for imposters is what it all it takes is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period, the end. (laughs) Nothing added. No other things added on to it, that that's what it takes to be saved, as Paul laid it out. But there will be people who will come along, and it'll sound nice. And you know what? It won't always be people who will come along. Sometimes it'll be a voice in your own heart and in your own life that tries to convince you that you're not saved until you do this or that. Paul says, is don't miss this truth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not a difficult process and there's not a whole set of rules that you need to follow. Watch out for imitations, watch out for imposters, watch out for people who will try and add things to the gospel that God made simple. The fifth and final one is this. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the one we've been talking about for the last few weeks. The idea that once we come to Christ, that we live a life for Christ. That we don't do it to earn things from God. We don't do it to, des- to demand and that salvation is owed to us. We do it because we have been saved. We live our life for God. The contrary truth to this is this. Once you decide to follow Jesus, that's all there is. Set it and forget it. Move on with the rest of your life as you see fit. This is the contrary truth to Romans 12.1. Look, all you have to do is decide. And once you decide, just, just check that box. It's like the insurance policy you keep in your fireproof safe in your house. Just keep it there. Don't worry about it. And in the, in the event of a disaster, just pull it out and you're all set. It's a contrary truth. When you come to follow Jesus Christ, you don't follow rules to be saved, and you don't follow all these things in order to be saved. But when I am saved, and when I am, realize what God has done for me and how much I, He loves me, that I live my life for Him and not for me. And that's my spiritual worship. That my worship is not the songs that I sing simply. It's not money that I give. My worship is my life. My worship is my life lived for God and not for me. It's not how I gain salvation. It is how I live because I am saved. It is my worship. If I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, that carries some weight. Lord means that he's my master. Lord means that I live for him. Lord means that he calls the shots. He gets to hold the wheel. He gets to direct the train. He is Lord. 
And so if I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord, then I will live my life as if Jesus is Lord. And so there'll be some that'll come along and say, you know what, no, no, look, you check the box, you raise your hand, you sign the card, no problem, move on, do what you want. Paul says, I beseech you, or I appeal to you, look, if you have believed this, and this is your life, then your life is lived for God, and this is your spiritual worship. So watch out for imitations. Watch out for imitations that would come along in your life and try and teach you a truth contrary to what you've been taught. Paul spent 16 chapters. We just spent nine months going through Romans. We just spent nine minutes talking about some of these important truths. Don't miss the original Don't get taken in by the imposters. There's a show on the History Channel, you may have seen it, about a pawn shop in Las Vegas where people bring in things to be appraised and see if they're junk or if they're treasures. And there was one episode where a man came in and brought a violin for appraisal. And according to his story, he had purchased a piece of property that had a house and a barn on it. And up in the barn, he found this old trunk. And when he opened this trunk, he discovered within it a violin. He took it out. It was all dusty. And he dusted it off and realized it was a near-perfect instrument. And inside it were the words Stradivarius. Clearly inscribed. If it was a real Stradivarius, it would be worth, he knew, millions of dollars. So he takes it to this pawn shop in Las Vegas and the experts looked at it and then they bring in another expert to look at it and to appraise it to find out if it was a genuine Stradivarius and they find out that instead of being a genuine Stradivarius, it's a cheap imitation produced about the early 1900s worth about five or six hundred dollars. The appraiser concluded by telling the crestfallen violin owner these words, just because something has a label doesn't mean it's real. There are imitations out there. There are imposters out there. Some of them may even wear the label of church or Christian or some other good-sounding title. But I'd ask you to compare it to the original. Make sure. Make sure that when someone is trying to convince you of something that you are lining it up against the truth of God's word. The truth that we've discussed in Romans, the truth that is available for you and I in the word of God, because the truth is that we need to be saved. The truth is we're sinners. The truth is that salvation lies outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. The truth is we will find the greatest satisfaction when we live for God's glory. The truth is our hope is not in this world, but in Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth is that truth is a person and not a thing. And when it comes to knowing the original, the best thing you can do is to know Jesus and to stick close to him. Because you and I are never going to have a perfect understanding of God. You and I will never have a perfect theology. 
We just spent nine months studying one book of the Bible trying to understand truth. But the truth is, no matter how much time you spend, no matter how many classes you take, no matter how many sermons you listen to, your understanding of God, my understanding of God, is always going to be incomplete and imperfect. So what do we do? Do we stop studying? Do we stop learning? No, we continue to study. We continue to learn. We keep doing all those things, but we recognize that the learning will not save us that the only thing that saves us is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So know that truth. Know that truth. And what I mean by know it is not just in your mind. Know it in the way that you know if you're married, your spouse. Know it in the way you know your kids. Know it in the way you know your best friend. Know the truth. Know Jesus Christ. And when you know him and who he is and what he teaches, then you will be able to recognize the imposters. You will be able to recognize the counterfeits. Know the truth. Know the truth. So Paul says to his friends, after he just writes all these names, he says, watch out. There'll be people who will come along. And they will try and bring division. And they will try and put obstacles in your way. And they will try and deceive you with smooth talk and flattery. They will do this by teaching things that are contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. And so I would say to know the doctrine that you've been taught. Know the truth in the person of Jesus Christ. The question today, are you believing the truth Or have you bought into a contrary truth? Have you bought into one of these contrary truths? See, everyone that walks the earth, everyone in this room and outside of this room, you've got to answer some simple questions about life. How did we get here? What are we worth? Why is the world so messed up? Is there anything after this thing? What's the solution for this mess? Why are we here? In this book of Romans, Paul has laid out many of the answers to these questions. We're here because you were created by God and because God wanted you here and for no other reason. Who you, what you are is valued by God not only because he created you because he sent Jesus to die for you. So you are, are of inestimable value. What the problem is, is we are sinners and we live in a world full of sinners. What the solution is, is turning to Jesus Christ and him being Lord of our lives and living the way he's called us to live. And why you're here is to glorify and love God and to love others that God has put you around. And so... Because there is this thing after this thing that if you will put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ that you will live with God forever and eternity. And so everyone, everyone has to have a worldview that somewhere answers those questions. How have you answered them? And are you convinced and satisfied with the answers that you have and that you hold? 
These are the answers that are presented in the Christian gospel and the Christian message. That we're sinners and we need a Savior. God has given us one. And then if we will believe, confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, that he will save us. And then we live our life for him as our spiritual act of worship.